Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman for our Monday edition of the Audible. And we're going to switch things up a little bit here, Bruce. Um, usually when we do mailbag, we save it for the second half of the show. But we haven't done it in a while and we've got some really good questions. So mailbag first. Then, unfortunately, I wasn't here for this part, but you and Sam Khan, our tech expert, had a really good conversation about some of the top storylines involving the top programs in the state of Texas. And then there's an interesting story that came out of all the Georgia football program that we want to touch on towards the end. But first, you ready for this? Uh, this is a real, I wish, um, always sign your name to the questions because we have a great email here that we're starting off with, but we don't know who sent it. So Stu, as you had noted, this is from unsigned. Hey, Bruce and Stu, curious to know your list of top three college football teams of all time. It can be based on national titles, draft picks, Heisman's, Hall of Famers, brand, etc. Also with a month to prep, who would win a game between Nick Saban's best Alabama team versus Pete Carroll's best USC team? Now, I think when I read this with national titles, draft picks, Heisman's, Hall of Famers, I think... Uh, I took programs or programs, not like the 2001 Miami team versus like one of the mid 90 Nebraska teams. Um, and so let's work off of that prism in terms of this. You and I have, have kind of kicked this around. We feel like there's two that are like, I don't want to say they're no brainers, but they were too strong. Like, Oh, we have to have these two. And then when it comes to the third school um, for me, it came down to really wrestling with, with why don't we start with the two okay. that we think are obvious okay my obvious one and this really is i don't think it would have been the case if nick saban hadn't had the run he's had at alabama but he's been the greatest college football coach of all time and he has had this remarkable run to me alabama is a no-brainer notre dame which is history is entwined with the history of the sport also to me is a no-brainer and then we get to number three Start with Alabama. So, I mean, you are—they already had a whole bunch of national championships because of Bear Bryant. Then Nick Saban comes in. There's a little bit of a debate over the actual number. They claim 18, but it's sometimes those ones that were before the AP poll uh, can make it a little complicated. But they've won the most. I think is the most important thing to say. They've spent the one stat I always find interesting is. Um, the list of the teams that have appeared in the AP poll the most number of weeks since it began in 1936. And Alabama is number one in that by a pretty considerable margin. Um, I do not have a list of most number one rankings, but I assume they are number one in that too. So to me, it's like, yes, they are, they are the best program of all time. Who would you have as number three? Number three, still debating that one a little bit um, as we speak. I mean, let's first talk number two, shall we? All right. So Notre Dame, which is which for a long time has been probably the most. It has this. I don't say it's the strongest fan base, but as the most national fan base, it also probably ha it was the most polarizing in part because of the other side of that. Um, there's a lot of folklore that goes along with Notre Dame um, from the four horsemen to Rudy to almost everything in between. It's got this 
Um, you know, it was the first really to have its own major network TV deal, which kind of, I think when it happened, it was a big, big deal. And then it kind of, I don't want to say it still exists, but it's, it's definitely not what it, the exclusivity factor that it had before, but there's a huge level of folklore. Um, is no, was Notre Dame a no brainer in your mind? It didn't start that way, but then I realized like the numbers support it. So they claim 13 national championships. Uh, as I'm looking here, it's probably more like nine, but that's still very high on the list. They are number four in most uh, weeks in the AP poll. They are number one, actually, in consensus All-Americans. So even if you're like, uh, I hate Rudy or, you know, I, I don't buy into all the mystique, like there are some some data to support it. Yeah, a lot of Heisman Trophy winners, um, you know, from guys who were quarterbacks to Tim Brown and, and guys who weren't who weren't uh, playing the traditional Heisman winning position. Um, you know, he also had at one point until Tom Brady came along, a guy most people thought was the greatest quarterback of all time. And he actually didn't win a Heisman. That was Joe Montana. Um, I don't know. For me, Notre Dame was like they were just going to be there. And, and again, it's not so much for it, the program for the last 25 years has been good and at times very, very good, but certainly not what anywhere near what Alabama has been. Certainly not what um, even Ohio state or USC have been in that stretch or certainly what Georgia has been now recently. But I still think when you're talking historically, it's just a, such a big legacy program that to me, they were a no brainer. I feel like if this was four, if, if this person had asked for four teams, I feel like it was a little easier. It's the third team that I kind of knew who I was going to pick. And part of that, a big part of that is star power, but um, it's Go still, for it. uh, to me, I picked USC over Michigan in this spot. I know Ohio state was in consideration for me as well. Um, in Oklahoma to some degree, but really it was, to me, it came down to USC and Michigan, and I ended up with USC. Um, and I don't know if I would have felt as strongly about it, but having lived here and knowing the star power of USC, the Pete Carroll run that they had, that, you know, it was, it was a dominant program at one point. You know, Michigan's been good, not not to that degree. I mean, I don't know. I, it's, it's a tough one, right? Cause I feel like in some ways, in some ways I could, you could make a case for what Oklahoma's done as easily, the more you think about it. So Oklahoma is my answer. And again, not an easy answer when you were looking at you, I think USC is a perfectly legit candidate. Um, Michigan is of course the, has the most number of wins. If that's your, main criteria i believe ohio state has the highest all-time winning percentage the problem for ohio state and michigan as historic and powerful as they are is they don't have as many national championships you know ohio state for all the you know they're unquestionably one of the most do one of if not the most dominant program over the last 20 25 years right but five national championships so oklahoma has seven national championships Oklahoma has the third most appearances in the AP, uh, AP poll, um, sixth and consensus all Americans. And I just feel like they don't, 
I mean, think about how good they've now been. Obviously, last year not being an exception. For this entire century, going back to the beginning of Bob Stoops, another little nugget I encountered there, the only college football program that has four coaches that have won at least 100 games. They set the record in, for most wins in a row that has yet to be broken. Um, you made a perfectly good case for USC. Well, I would, um, I would add this one for USC, and this kind of backs into the yeah. Notre Dame one, and one of the points our, our, our emailer had, had, had brought up, which was Hall of Famers. Notre Dame has produced the most college football Hall of Famers, 48. USC is second with 35. Then Michigan, 32. Tennessee, Pitt, and Ohio State are next with 26. What's the uh, Heisman count? Ohio State, Oklahoma, and Notre Dame tied for the most, I believe. And USC. Four-way tie. That doesn't really help us. I think that number three answer is just completely subjective. But I'll go with the Sooners. You'll go with the Trojans. We're going to hear from a lot of Michigan and Ohio State fans, I'm sure. Um, but and I don't think, but I don't think the pool goes beyond that. Now, this this unsigned person asked two excellent questions. The second one was. With a month to prepare, who would win a game between Nick Saban's best Alabama team and Pete Carroll's best USC team? Well, let's start with... And before we get to that, can I ask you... So what did you say was the number of the Heisman Trophy winners count? Um, it was a bunch of schools that all had seven. Yeah, so one of those schools... So it's actually... I'm going to say, and look, I'm biased. I worked with him. But it's USC has eight. Oh, yeah. whatever I'm looking at didn't count Reggie, huh? Yeah, so that's the difference. Like yeah. USC has eight because now Caleb Williams was the eighth. I know Reggie doesn't have his Heisman technically. We saw what happened. I don't need, you know, I know the billboards are all over here saying give it back. They should. Um, it's the ones you talked about, Oklahoma, Notre Dame, Ohio State, all have seven. USC, Reggie won it. They have eight. Given that then, I think that those, those are the two, Oklahoma and SC. Like – and 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 maybe it is SC. Maybe I'm I'm wrong. But I think all that stuff adds up to them to them being. If it's not OU, it's it's USC in my opinion. First, we have to answer the second question. First, we have to say who's who's Nick Saban's best Alabama team and who's Pete Carroll's best USC team. I know that the 05 team that lost to Texas gets the most hype, but I actually think his best team was the year before. What about you? It's a good question. You know, I. I don't know. I don't know because I know I, I feel like they've had much better offenses in the last five years, but I feel like their defenses were better before that. I don't know. Um, if you wait, have, wait, you're talking about Alabama. Yes. Oh, I asked about us timeout. Well, I USC's best team to me was the team that smashed Oklahoma in. Yeah. Oh, four. Yeah. It was 55, 19. That team was loaded on offense and it was actually very good on defense. It had some, you know, Mike Patterson it was, was an all-American defensive lineman. They had playmakers at all, at all three levels. I think that was, you know, to me, like if you take the best Alabama team, you have a, you have a really fast, explosive group of receivers. Reggie was such a different, you know, weapon for everything. You know, in terms of that, you had – um, what's what's interesting on that team was, you know, they were without 
probably their best receiver because Mike Williams didn't play that year. Remember, mm-hmm. that's Claret goes in. Um, I mean, they're still good outside, but that was a little different. I I think I'm going with USC. Um, Alabama for all the national titles he's won. I don't know that there's one that stands out as the most complete team. Now, 2020 team was the most dominant. They played an all power five schedule. They blew everybody out, but one, um, Devonte Smith had one of the best seasons that a receiver has ever had in college football. Uh, but that defense wasn't, you know, what you would think of as a vintage Nick Saban defense. You go back earlier, you know, the 2011 team had an absolutely historic defense, not much offense to speak of. So I'm having trouble. Like, I think it's pretty obvious the 2004 USC team, which by the way, wearing third in the country in defense uh, is, is the choice on his side. I don't know what the Alabama choice is. Now, if you're asking, like given a month or I, I think Nick Saban with a month to prepare is, is pretty unbelievable. Uh, I mean, they've only lost one of those semifinals, right. To Ohio state uh, in the first playoff. <laughs> so you could just say like, well, I think Saban is so great at preparation that whoever USC threw at him, he would figure it out. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's like you're, are we romanticizing the USC team too much? Are we being too, nitpicky of Alabama because it's more recent but I do think that 04 USC team I mean the Oklahoma team they beat 55 to 19 was very good so that was a great team yeah I don't know it's a fun question we'll never get quite the answer to it and what I also think is when we have these discussions as college football um, media certainly when people talk about the greatest college football team of all time I don't think people you know Focus on Pete Carroll's best team versus Nick Saban's best team. It's either 2001 Miami, one of the you know one of the mid 90s Nebraska teams. I mean, I did a story on this, you know, a you know long time ago for the Athletic. The most talented team of all time, I would argue, um, was actually a USC team, but it was 1979 John Robinson team. The number of Pro Bowler slash Hall of Fame guys who came off that team was insane and they ended up not winning the national title. They won it the year before, but this is a different kind of question. And I think it is interesting, but again, you know, like how they would have played, how they would have worked out um, against that. I don't know. would have been interesting. So let's move on to um, Kevin who asks about the subjects of tampering. I don't know if this is much about tampering, although Pat Narduzzi's name comes up. Well, it can certainly be frustrating for coaches at the group of five level to lose quality players to bigger programs. Don't group of five schools benefit from transfers from the power five level? Rhett Lashley had a number of players from programs like Texas A&M and Miami transfer into SMU. Same could be said for the new coach at Charlotte. Losing quality players to bigger programs is the cost of doing business for non-blue blood schools. I'm sure if Pat Narduzzi had the opportunity to poach an NFL caliber player from Akron or Miami of Ohio, he would certainly do it without reservation. Yeah, the moving up guys is what we hear the most about. Are the group of five schools equally benefiting from guys who necessarily couldn't necessarily get on the field at AM, Miami, et cetera, suddenly playing for them? And yeah, SMU has gotten a bunch of good players from Rhett Lashley and Garen Justice's old team at Miami. They also did lose Tanner Mordecai to Wisconsin. He threw for a 
like 75 touchdowns in the last two years um, and was really, really good. I think by and large, they, the group of five are ask, you know, the raging Cajuns, how many good players they lost over the last two years of schools get, you know, taking from their, um, from their team. And it, it wasn't just Billy Napier going back to his old school to get a really good offensive lineman or, you know, but there was, it's just a lot. And I think that's really hard. We see UTSA has developed some really good players, but, you know, as recently, you know, they lose a really good receiver to Ole Miss. And it just, I think they, they lose more than they're getting. And what's happening is they're developing players and yeah, they may get some drop downs, but some of those drop downs are guys who are maybe not, you know, they're dropping down because, usually something's not working out at the place they're at. Whereas the guys who are leaving are usually players who are thriving at those schools. That's why I, I think it's like, yeah, we've heard of this guy and he might've been a four star somewhere, but just cause he was a four star in high school. And then maybe his, his career is kind of teetered a little bit for a variety of reasons. I think that's why they're losing more than they're gaining. To right. It's not like, you know, I think what might be different with the immediate eligibility is like there's been a lot of quarterbacks over the years that transferred down and became starters, successful starters. But with the ability to just transfer and play right away the next year um, and not have to sit out, I think maybe those guys now would be more likely to just try at a different power five school. Well, here, Hugh Freeze said last week or two weeks ago at SEC media, SEC meetings that. He thought if you worried about the tampering in this, one of the things that would would stop it is if you went brought back the one year in residence rule, where if guys transferred basically across levels as they used to, that you'd have to sit out, and that would stop the transfer flow. Which I don't think he's wrong. I don't think that's a good well, idea. Well, yeah, I mean that's the whole reason this is happening is that they've decided that they kind of finally gave into criticism and realized that they couldn't continue to restrict restrict players like that. All right, Stu, this, this next question from Blaine in Virginia. Dear Bruce and Stu, the competitive balance of Big Ten scheduling is extremely unfair. Michigan has to play Ohio State, Michigan, and then seven other Big Ten schools. Ouch. Penn State has no permanent opponents. Ohio State only has Michigan, and USC only has UCLA. They solved the dilemma of having to play the game in back-to-back weeks without divisions. Make you make Michigan's schedule so much more difficult than the rest of the Big Ten elite, so they never make it. Yeah, every it's always like there's some huge conspiracy. They, you know, the Big Ten what doesn't want Michigan, one of their two marquee programs, to ever play in the Big Ten championship game. Um, how? <laughs> but you see why? Uh, you see where Blaine's point is. They do. Michigan State has typically been very good at times elite at times solid and you obviously have ohio state as a superpower that is different than than what everybody else has in terms of rivalry setup so um i thought scott doctorman wrote a really good column about this in terms of how the big 10 approach to this obviously they want to preserve rivalries and those are two big rivalries but there was also acknowledgement that some schools have two big rivalries and some schools don't have any um and penn state you know, I know we've tried to, they've tried to, um, over the years, turn the land grant trophy into something, but clearly, because the schools had a say in this, the schools 
you know, gave a list of like, these are the ones we have to play. These are the ones that would be nice to play. And Penn State apparently said there wasn't any we have to play. Um, so there's that part of it. But they also, you know, according to Scott's story, like they went through 10, 20 years of, of data and it is competitively tried to be competitively balanced out. Right. So it is going to be when they make Michigan schedules, supposedly it'll take into account the fact that they're already playing two of the top. I don't know where Michigan state would fall on that list. Let's say two of the top six uh, programs. So they're not going to be get loaded up on other teams in that tier. Whereas I saw that they're preserving like the Purdue Illinois rivalry. Uh, Illinois is playing Purdue and Northwestern every year, which tells me Illinois is probably going to get some other tough games in, in the rest of this uh, in the rest of their stretch. Stu, our last question for the mailbag segment this week is from Emily. Hi there. I'm a regular listener of the podcast. It helps me make all the dudes I play NFL fantasy football with look stupid when they try to talk about college football, which is really what I'm looking for in life. I mean, if there's if, if that's if there's anything I can contribute to, like that means a lot. I'm glad we're able to contribute to, to her making those dudes look dumb. OK, well, here is her point. Anyway. I was a little disappointed this past week with the Hall of Fame, College Football Hall of Fame episode. Someone said that Michael Vick would be in their top three. There is a lot of incredible college football players that aren't in the Hall of Fame. And in your top three, you pick someone who actively fought dogs and committed animal abuse. I found myself disappointed in that choice. I understand that he played well in college football, but the 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 abuse should trump athletic accomplishments. I'll be a listener, but it was a bummer. Thank you for reporting. Y'all do all the reporting you do. Uh, go Beeves. Th- Thank you for writing in Emily. Cause I do think that's a legitimate conversation to be had there. Um, obviously that was one of the more heinous scandals involving a football player um, that we've seen. In our time. Player, yes. Yeah. Star football player. Um I mean, there was definitely a time when it didn't look like he was going to be able to keep playing football because it was that bad. Um, my thing is, and this is not specific to Michael Vick, Hall of Fame, Heisman, you know, like the Heisman has a thing in the um, on the website about that integrity is a part of the criteria. It doesn't say that on the ballot. It says that on the website. And so when there were guys like Jameis Winston, obviously, Johnny Manziel, who people thought, shouldn't get voted because of that clause. What I would always come back to is like, we don't know who the other people's integrity, like who are we to judge the, especially with a college player, 19, 20, 20, who are we to say like this person has integrity and this person doesn't, we don't know what's going on in other people's lives. In Michael Vick's case, he's being rewarded for his college football career. That dog fighting awfulness didn't happen until later. So I think it would be setting a dangerous precedent to say we're going to, we're going to, in in considering who should be in the college hall of fame ballot, we should look at what they did off the field in the years after they left college. Does that make sense? Um, I think what's also, you know, and again, I appreciate how, Emily's point on this, this is something we were voicing our opinions as opposed to we don't vote in the College Football Hall of Fame. So we don't know like the process. Yes, neither of us has a vote in this. 
the process is super cryptic, right? We've talked about how we're like stunned who's not in this, how their criteria is. Um, and I think it is, it, it is a slippery slope to me where it's like, okay, so there's somebody who's in and then what happens if they are found to do something really despicable? Then what do they get pulled out of it? Um, you know, obviously OJ Simpson's um, reputation is way different than it was <laughs> when he was announcing and he was in the naked gun and, um, you and know, he's in the college football hall of fame. Yeah. And we talked about the Heisman a few minutes ago. He still has it. I mean, I don't know if he still physically has it, but he's, you know, it's not like they've stripped him of it. Um, so I don't know if that's it. And, it's fair for you to think that's a cop out for how we're answering this. I mean, my, my feeling was always we, especially at the college football level, we just don't know that much about the character of a lot of people at college football. Cause you really exposure to them is very limited in terms of like what they get, you get to see of them. Right. So, I mean, there's plenty of professional athletes who are, you know, we can think of a bunch of them off of our heads who we find out that their behavior or their character is really lacking. Um, and I know that topic has come up with, with who people get voted into hall of fames and everything. And that's, I don't know. I think it's a personal choice of how people choose to handle it. So those are some good questions. Um, People have continued to send questions to the audiblepod at gmail.com, so we will continue to check the inbox. Um, I know I took some live Twitter questions a couple weeks ago, but you can obviously still send your questions to the audiblepod at gmail.com. All right, let's turn our attention. Uh, why don't you set up the interview that you did with Sam Khan? Yeah, so we we wanted to touch on, there's a bunch of stuff that is, um, the state of Texas has a bunch of, obviously, football programs. And there's a lot of intrigue with the direction of certainly the, the most celebrated of those programs traditionally, as well as a bunch of the programs who are maybe typically a notch below in terms of the hype around them, as well as a bunch of other stuff that we thought it would be a good time to kind of jump into with our expert on all things Texas football, and that is Sam Kahn. Okay, we are pleased to be joined by our guest today. He is our colleague who covers all things Texas and does an amazing job with it. Longtime uh, reporter out of the Houston area, Sam Kahn Jr. Sam, thanks for joining us today on the Audible. Hey, thanks for having me, Bruce. All right, so before, before kind of before I get to some of the stuff I really want to talk to, like the athletic wall, we're doing this for the last couple of weeks, and I guess for the next week or two, we have this recruiting series. Um, and so we've broken down, I think, every power five school. And it's fun, even if you're not a, a huge fan of the individual school, I think it's interesting to see some of the stories where it's, you know, best recruit, maybe best recruit before the internet ranking zeros is kind of in that 2000 and forward, uh, best development guy, biggest bust. The one you did today just went up as we're taping this on Monday was Houston, which I thought was interesting because I think a lot of us will remember, wasn't that long ago when, they landed at Oliver with Tom Herman. And at the time, Houston was not a power five program. And it was like a wow get, right? Um, 
And then you, your one that got away was a good one because it was RG3, and we know how we know what he turned into. You covered that program a really long time. I would ask you this, um, just on the Ed Oliver piece, like, does that seem like forever ago to think about? <laughs> like, you covered Houston before. You covered when Summy had the job. Mm-hmm. You know, how far back did you cover Houston? Was it pre-Briles or just Briles? It, it was Briles. So my my first like writing job was as a student at the student newspaper at university of Houston, which is where I graduated. And the first team I covered was Browse's second team, his Oh four team. Uh, so, so that's as far back as my coverage of the university goes. And then from there, I went to high schools for five years after I graduated and then came back on the Sumlin era and was on the beat there. And then went to ESPN for a little while. And then when Tom Herman got there, I kind of went there a lot more just because you kind of could tell that the program was on the uptick and that Herman was going to get them going. So, so kind of off and on back all the way back, I say now 18 years, uh, just really in, in little short bursts, but I've, since I've lived here, obviously it's always been easy for me to go over there. Does it feel much different now that they're a big 12 school? Yeah, I do think so because, and and I I don't know that it feels that way now in this moment as we sit here in June of 2023, but I think it will feel very different in the fall when they're actually playing Big 12 competition. When they they host that first game in September against TCU, that's going to be an interesting atmosphere to see what it looks like. But they do feel to me, they're like a planet different than what, on a different planet from what they were when I was a student there. They they when there was I was a student there, there was discussion of whether or not they should even be competing at the FBS level. That that I guess prior to Bryles' arrival, they had had an 0 and 11 season in 2001. That they had flirted with that 15,000 a game attendance benchmark that you're supposed to reach to to stay in the FBS. They, they, they were I remember there was one game I think against Louisville one year that they had to. I would say kindly fudge the numbers a little bit to get to the to the average fifteen thousand for the home schedule. Uh, and now you're talking about uh, to just today they announced that they set a school record in season ticket sales for uh, for for the uh, era of the TDECU stadium. So it's just it, they're just on a different planet because back then they were they were very much left in the wilderness and kind of in a in a slump in a stupor post Southwest conference. And now they found their way back to a power conference through a lot of effort, some really good coaching hires and a lot of money. Uh, and a lot of money and a lot of Tillman for Tita, a little bit of Tillman for Tita, uh, a lot of fundraising. There's students take a, a part in that too, because they, they end up passing student fees to help with the football stadium funding back in 2011. So it's this a little bit Mac, of everything. This was some Mac roads, uh, heavy lifting from when he was the AD there, right? Yep. So. Yeah. Yeah. The, the fact that they got the stadium deal done in 2011, you'd have told me that that was actually going to happen. I, I think I would have, I would have uh, met that with skepticism because it seemed like a white whale for them to get a, a state football stadium done on campus. Can I ask you this? So you'd have a good, good feel for this. Um, how big is the, is there a gap or how, what is the difference in perception around the state between where Houston is right now and where SMU is right now, because, you know, one is getting bumped up. The other one is it's still in a solid conference in the AAC, but it's not the big 12. It's not, it doesn't have that power five 
distinction. I feel like Sonny elevated them quite a bit. You know, Chad Morris did, and then Sonny certainly. And now, I, you know, I like Rat Lashley. I feel like they've you know done a nice job. But is there a is it a gulf? Is it a gap? What is it? I don't think. I think the only gulf or gap is in the conference at this point, and, and it's the revenue that that's the piece. I thought it was a lot bigger when we're talking five, six years ago. We talk about the Ed Oliver sign in 2016 when, when Houston was signing a class that was ranked in the top 40 nationally. I think it was a lot bigger then than it is now. Ever since Sonny Dykes got there and started turning things around, SMU's really been on an uptick from a football program standpoint. Uh, they certainly seem to be able to pay their coaches, not just football, but in basketball as well. Uh, and they've done a really good job, and since Lashley's been there, Turning that roster over, building up, they've done. They're they're ahead of Houston in an NIL from an NIL perspective. Uh, they're doing a really good job of raising money. They're going to get their operations building done before Houston's is, and Houston's been working toward that for a while. And, and SMU is going to get it done a lot quicker. So I, I think the only gap at this point between those two is just the conference membership. I think in terms of com- pure competitiveness, I think SMU is very much. A, kind of on the heels of Houston, maybe maybe just right now on, I would even say on par with Houston because you look at the roster talent, I think it's pretty comparable right now. He, SMU has a lot of former Power 5 players or Power 5 caliber players that they've gotten through the portal or that they've recruited, and they've done a really good job on that front. So I don't think there's very much of a gap between those two programs right now. Um, you know, you with Rice going to the AAC going up, and that's a program that's been down for a long time as a hard – I feel like David Bailiff did about as good a job as he could do there, but it was just, it's been a struggle. And I feel like, you know, I, I mean, is that like, how is that playing right now locally? That one's tough just because everybody knows that it's a hard job. It's, it's one of the most difficult jobs in the country because of, you know, it, it, there's very stringent academic requirements and and the, the recruiting pool is a little bit smaller but you're in Houston, and it's 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 a beautiful campus. It's it's right in the middle of the city. I think a lot of fans really w- would have been excited if they got to a bowl game last year. And they did get to a bowl game, but they didn't get to six wins. They they ended up getting there because there weren't enough six and six teams. If they had gone six and six or seven and five, I think you'd have a lot more enthusiasm. That said, th- this is I think a little bit of a make or break year for Mike Bloomgren. They, they've got to get to a one. They need to get back to 500, above 500, which they haven't done since 2014. Getting JT Daniels has gotten some excitement there. Rice just signed the highest recruiting class that they've ever signed in, in the modern internet rankings era. So they're they're doing a pretty decent job in, in portal and the recruiting. And I think that the, the tough part for them is, is, is scheduling, is that they always have such a really tough non-conference schedule. They're going to start, you know, they had last year, they opened up against USC. This year, they'll open up at Texas. And, and that part, I think, is always difficult. But in the AAC, can they be competitive? I think they can. Can they be a team that wins the conference consistently? I still think there's a long way to go before they get there. And and there's they, they just have to be a little bit better in terms of building that roster talent. I think they're doing a good job of it right now, but it's just it's going to take time. And I think that's a place that's just always going to be difficult to win consistently just because of some of the challenges that come with that job. Yeah, I am curious about how JT Daniels does at this new stop. He's definitely a good passer. I think the question will be, you know, I don't know if it's well, you know, if much less if he's if he can play like he was the guy who was the, the five star rated guy, but just can he be a high level college quarterback? 
you know, and I don't know what's the buzz out of there so far. Yeah, they they love him. Uh, they they have not. And the thing is, is he's got a long time relationship with Mike Bloomgren. Bloomgren was at Stanford as the offense coordinator when they offered JT. I think coming out of his sophomore year of high school. So there's we're talking about a seven eight year relationship. So Bloomgren was over the moon that they signed him. Marcus Tuiasasopa, the offensive coordinator, he was working out in the West Coast as well in the Pac-12 when, when JT was a recruit. So there's a relationship there as well. Uh, they love him. And I think when you pair him with Luke McCaffrey, who we remember from Nebraska, who transferred to Rice, he's turning into a really good receiver there. Brad Rosner, who's who's been their best receiver the last few years, he came back for a super senior year. Yeah, there's a, a lot of potential. The borderline freaks guy for me because he was like a yeah. high jumper and he's super tall. I don't know if he's 6'5", but I remember – you know, so those are those are good those are good weapons for JT in that league. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, he's he's got the right approach. He and everybody I've talked to, and I've talked to a lot of people. You know, at some point this summer, we'll do a story on JT and, and his journey. I talked to a lot of former coaches, and nobody that I've talked to, whether it was at USC or West Virginia or Georgia, has had anything bad to say about JT. They, they they've all raved about his approach, his work ethic, how he gets the job done, and how he has reacted to all the setbacks he's had in his career, whether it's been injuries, whether it's been getting benched. I, I talked to Neil Brown and Graham Harrell, at West Virginia, and they were both flabbergasted with how well JT took being benched at the end of last season at West Virginia. And I think for JT, this year is all about proving that he is that guy, not just for himself, but for the next level, because he wants a career at the NFL level. And, and this is his chance to work in a pro style offense that he feels like is his best fit, and every coach will tell you probably fits best in this style of offense. And I think that that marriage, I think, has real potential this fall. All right, so let's talk about some of the bigger brand schools in in Texas. And I, a couple of weeks back, you had written in your mailbag about Jimbo Fisher and what it would take to kind of change the what 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 the win loss record would need to be for him to to kind of drag it out of the ditch perception wise um at least nine wins you think the yeah i think I, so the question i would have for you because you were like eight and four big buyout he's probably safe if you if he is sitting there at six and four the last two games <laughs> where it's cupcake and then i think it's at lsu mm-hmm. i don't know if it's i know if it's lsu or at lsu but it's not going to be a it's not gonna be an easy game um does is that a must win for him if they're seven and four. So it's so hard to tell because there's two things that work here. There's the perception of the program, which like you said, if they're sitting at six and four going into the last two weeks, you would think the enthusiasm in Aggieland is going to be terrible. And they're uh, coming off. You of, expect- and you pointed out like in your story about the record versus the two Mississippi schools, right? It, you know, mm-hmm. his record has not been great. They're going to have back-to-back games against, I think it's at Ole Miss and then Mississippi State right before that. So I think that would, you know, if they win both, you know, I don't know. If they win both, they're probably not 6-4 and four at that point, though. My, my biggest question is what happens if he ends up 6-6 six and six and 7-5? and five? Because when, when we did the story at the end of last year, after everything that happened, as bad as things went, asking the question of, you know, we're here in year five and you've got a 5-7 and seven team, it was made clear to us by leadership that that even if the buyout was half of what it is, and at this point we're talking right right now as we sit, it's probably about 84, 85 million right now. Even if it was half that, that firing him was not on the table. 
So if you take that into consideration, you would think that there is it's going to be really hard, even if you finish the six and six or seven and five to get rid of them. But we also know that Texas A&M really, really wants to be great. And they they are willing to do whatever it takes and spin whatever it takes. So that's my question is, is will the pressure build up so much that they're going to be forced to do something at that point? Because he's already made a coordinator change. I guess you, in theory, could make another coordinator change after this season if it doesn't work out. But I really do think whether it's ha- something happens this year or not, to me, what AM does this season is going to set the stage for whether or not this thing is going to work at AM long term because they signed with that extension in 21. And to me, if you can't get it done when you hire, you bring in, you did all this and brought a new offense coordinator, you brought in Bobby Petrino, you're going to change the offense handover play calling and all that stuff. If you're doing all that and it still doesn't work with this offensive talent, with the team talent they have, they're going to, they're ranked somewhere in the top five, top six in the country in team talent composite. If you cannot get it done with this talent and at least win nine games against this schedule, then I think you have to have serious questions about whether he's the right guy for this program. Especially at that point of his tenure. I think the game to me, which is the swing game for him, it's like, you. It's I don't know if I would call it the must win, but it's like the absolute you cannot lose game. The first month of the schedule is very manageable. They, they, go, they have four of their first five games at home. It's week two against a Miami team who, honestly, people don't think is going to be that good. It's at Miami, which, you know, it's a noon game or a 1230. No, I'm sorry. It's a mid-afternoon game. But it's still, it's a game you really should not lose if you're Jimbo Fisher at this point of their career at Texas A&M. If you win it, you're probably looking at worst 4-1 and one before Alabama comes in and then the schedule gets hard. If you lose it, you know, I don't know. They, I mean, Auburn, I think they should beat. And Arkansas, I think they should beat. They're both in College Station. But let's say... So that, that one's a jury world. Arkansas has got one um, more year at jury world. Okay, so let's say... I mean, four and one is, is very, very plausible. I think it's anything worse than that. I feel like then Jimbo is in, in big trouble because then you got Alabama at Tennessee... South Carolina at Ole Miss, Mississippi State. I think it's Abilene Christian, and then at mm-hmm. LSU. If you're worse than four and one after f- those five games with Alabama up, I don't think he's going to make it. Yeah, and that's that's the thing is, I, I think the question becomes what happens at the end. Are, are they going to be willing to eat the contract? And I know they don't have the stomach for it. At least they did. At least last year at, at the end of November. They, they didn't really have the stomach for it. But at the same time, are you willing? Because the enthusiasm on the recruiting trail will go down. The enthusiasm from the fan standpoint will go down. And how long can you afford to exist in that way, especially when you've got Texas and Oklahoma coming into the conference in 2024? And I think that timing of them coming in factors in a lot in this equation too, because now that your rival is coming in, you, you really cannot afford to be down for an extended period of time. So that's what, to me, is going to make this season so fascinating. And it very well they very well could end up winning nine, nine or ten games because they have the talent. When you look at Connor Wegman, you look at Evan Stewart, Anaya Smith is back, Moose Muhammad is there, they signed Ruben Owens. The offensive talent is off the charts. They got bring their entire offensive line back. That defense that took a lot of lumps, there was a lot of young guys last year, but most most of those guys are back. 
they, they did lose a lot of depth in the portal. So that's going to be, I think, the, the real sticking point for them is, is can they survive injuries? Can they survive some bumps and bruises and things like that? Uh, because last year that they, they got hit that way in a, in a big way and, and it hurt them. But, uh, but I, I do think overall the roster talent is still good enough, in my opinion, if you make the right decisions, if you're doing what you, your job as a coach is the job you were hired to do, this, this to me has the talent of a 10-win roster. This, this is a 10-win roster when you look at the talent. And, uh, but, but if, it, if it's six or seven wins, and to me, like I said, I think you lose a lot of faith in, in, in the current staff if, you do, if that's, that's how it ends up. Yeah. I mean, as far as the, the, the Big 12, and I don't want to jump on Texas at this point, but I would bring up, who do you feel? We know what tech, TCU did in year one under Sonny Dykes, amazing season. Um, Texas Tech has recruited really well, and Joey McGuire's seemed to put, you know, super fast recruiting class together. And then there's Baylor, who had a, you know, a f- fell down after a terrific second year under under Dave Aranda. Who do you feel the most confident in of those three teams, given where they are going into this season? The most confident I feel in terms of having a chance to actually play for the conference title is Texas. I do think. Everything that Steve Sarkeesian has done from a roster building standpoint, from a coaching staff hiring standpoint, just the general trajectory of the program, it all seems to be going up, seems to be going in the right direction. Uh, This is, to me, their best chance to win the league in quite some time. Uh, They are going to have some competition. I think Kansas State's going to have a say in that, the reigning conference champ, because they bring back a lot as well, and, and they've done a really good job there under Chris Kleiman, but they're the ones I feel the most confident about this year. I will say in the long haul, I am very optimistic about Texas tech because Joey McGuire's done a really good job from a recruiting standpoint, building. So I, I thought his first staff that he hired was terrific. I thought they did a great job. They only lost one full-time assistant coach off that staff this year. Emmett Jones, who went to Oklahoma, uh, but th- there's a lot of energy there. And I do think if you're picking a dark horse team, if you're picking a TCU-like team to kind of come out of nowhere and make some noise in November, I think I'd pick Texas Tech to be that team. Uh, they've got Tyler Shuck, who's a veteran starter. He just got named a starter recently. Uh, they've got, like I said, the, both coordinators are back. They, they really were – They really, I think they finished the season really strong last year, and, and you can really see – kind of how the culture has changed in that program. So I, I'm not saying they're going to get to the Big 12 title game, but I, I would not be surprised if they snuck in. But Texas, to me, is the favorite out of that group. And then Baylor, to me, I think they'll be better. I, I'm not ready to say they're going to go win the league or, or get back to winning back to the conference championship game, but I do think they should be an eight or nine win team this year. Yeah, on, the, on the Texas Tech part, and this is obviously losing you know a top 10 pick in the draft who also – absolutely pass the eyeball test but seeing them field level um late in the year and i think i saw you at this at this game it was a tcu game mm-hmm. um they had some big dbs and some really impressive guys on that defense and it was like you know and you remember from from being in, in lubbock when cliff was there like defensively i felt like once they you know jordan brooks was a really good recruit but they had gone a long time they did not have those kind of bodies on the defensive side of the ball where now you look at them, I mean, big athletic guys in the secondary and they still have got some dudes in the D line who are really impressive. Um, 
I'm interested to see because, like, like we said, they've definitely added a ton of speed, and everybody around there, you know, like you hit on it. I think he did, he put together a really good staff, really good coordinators, really good position coaches. Um, I know, like, yeah, just from the guys I know there, they talk about some of the guys on their staff who do a really good job developing people, developing relationships. So interesting. Um, I don't know. I, I can't wait to see that Alabama Texas game, kind of the rematch, because. Texas had them on the ropes and it feels like, you know, obviously no Bijan, you know, you lose two terrific running backs, one great one and one really good one, but the receiving room is stacked now mm-hmm. and we'll see how big of a jump yours takes in year two. Yeah. I, I think the biggest question I have for Texas is the leadership part losing Bijan Robinson and Roshan Johnson, though those two guys were the model teammates and, and Roshan was probably the biggest alpha in terms of leader in that locker room. So replacing that is not easy. And, and that's, that's what I'll be looking to see and how that develops this year. But from a pure talent standpoint, you mentioned the receiver room, you add AD Mitchell, you add Jonte cook, who I think is going to be a terrific talent. They still have Isaiah Nair who missed all of last year, the Wyoming transfer. He, he's, he's a burner. And great I think they haven't really yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah, no, they got they've got uh, they got great tight ends, Jatavian Sanders, five former five star. He he'll he'll be a future draft pick. Yours uh, yours development is going to be really key here. How well does he develop? How much does he clean up the little things like the footwork, the accuracy downfield, just just his day to day, and all, all the all the reviews and offseason have been good. Defensively, you bring back a guy who who was one of the best defensive players in the Big Twelve and Jalen Ford. I think. You know, Pete Kwiatkowski has been there now for three years. Uh, that that whole defensive staff has been there for three years, the full-time assistant. So that continuity is really, really important and really good. So I do think everything is kind of set up right now for Texas. And that Alabama game, like you said, is going to be a really good litmus, te- litmus test because, yes, they were competitive and, and it came down to the wire last year. But this game. is different. They should have won, won it. Yeah. They should have won it. But now you go to Tuscaloosa, and, and this is going to be a whole different atmosphere. And so going on the road is going to be a whole different a- animal. Sam, thanks so much for joining us today on the Audible. Um, as always, uh, as always, follow Sam, not just for Texas stuff, but for all things college football. He is a great follow on Twitter, and he's a terrific reporter. Uh, Sam, we'll see you soon. Thanks for having me. All right, before we go this week, Bruce, um, we wanted to touch on a story that ran in the uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution on, I believe, on Friday a big investigation into Kirby Smart and Georgia's program surrounding reckless driving by a pretty alarming number of players. Um, why don't you hit on some of the highlight? I want to call them highlights. Some of the notable takeaways. Yeah, to me, this the story that the thing that jumped out at me probably the most was something that came later in, and this was a long. Uh, enterprise story that the AJC did um, where it's talking about, you know, football players driving at excessively over the speed limit where talking about guys going more than 30 miles over the speed limit, getting caught. Um, And then at one point there's a line about it. This all happens in the context of the death of two members of, the the Georgia football program this past winter one was an offensive lineman the other one was you know on staff and the point was that it didn't seem like the players had gotten the message and I'm going to read to you this 
following paragraph. Wide receiver Marcus Rosemeet Jack Saint was cited three times just last month for driving 20 miles over the speed limit on May 15th, 31 miles over the speed limit on May 16th, and 45 miles over the speed limit, doing a 90 and a 45-mile-per-hour zone on May 23rd. An Athens police officer arrested him on a reckless driving charge after the latest traffic stop. Um, so that's three times getting caught at excessive speeds in eight days. Um, and there's, as to my knowledge, there's been no announcement from Kirby Smart or anybody at Georgia about how the disciplining for this. Again, this doesn't happen in a vacuum because this report lists a lot of other uh, instances, including uh, the one with Jalen Carter, one of their star players, you know, as well, who was in, who was involved in, you know, the in fatal the, crash, the fatal crash. Right. And so um, our, our uh, reporter on, on the Bulldogs, Seth Emerson actually asked Kirby about that a couple of weeks ago. And this was part of Kirby's um, response to Seth. As he points out, the speeding charges have all been misdemeanors, but have been in the spotlight because of the January 15th crash, especially with two of the inc incidents after that. In the past, Smart has not announced suspensions for arrests and is not changing his policy for these arrests. Kirby's, Kirby's response is said. Nobody's more embarrassed than Marcus R Rosemey and his parents. Oh my gosh, they've, they're just crushed. Marcus has, has to learn from this. So does, and then he points in another player got in trouble. Part of being an 18-year-old man, a 19-year-old young man, a 20-year-old young man is you have to learn from your mistakes. I was that age once, too. We don't condone anything. They've got to do a good job and make good decisions off the field. We've got a lot more education things lined up to come, parentheses, on speeding, but it's not just about that. Um, so the, the, the one thing I think is, you know, to me when I read this story that kind of I thought about was... I used to not, you know, when it comes to like driving citations, because you see a lot of times players without a license and, and different losing a license, maybe not showing up for something. I think in the case of because there was this tragedy where two people died from Georgia and then you see, you know, more and still going on. Yeah. The, the thing that I kind of looked back at this and thought, all right, you know, to lump all this in. I, you know, to me, DUIs are a different level of, of dangerous. Um, but I would lump all those driver, you know, violations before in with like, do you, with, uh, I'm sorry, I would lump it all with, with minor in possession or stuff with weed. But after the Henry Ruggs tragedy and Georgia having two people die, you know, it's surprising that Kirby Smart and Georgia have not come out more forcefully from a public pump public standpoint um and i you know you can say people are doing you know handling things internally but it's surprising that they have not you know become you know send more of a message publicly about how we're going to handle this because again the instances as the ajc has outlined seem like they're they haven't they haven't uh slowed down from the article exactly how smart punishes players is unclear in one instance in 2019, he ordered six players who had been arrested over the previous six weeks to run the steps to run the steps of Sanford Stadium 
in front of a select audience of donors to Georgia's athletics department. Okay, that is just weird. Uh, otherwise, he routinely declines to disclose disciplinary actions after players break team rules or the law. Everyone wants to know what the punishment is, Smart said after a recent string of arrests. Well, the players know what the punishment is. Um, it just kind of comes off as one of these situations where the head coach feels like there shouldn't be any scrutiny. Like, leave us alone. We take care of our own business. None of your business. You know, maybe they're running stadium steps or something. I don't know. I mean, the two obvious, you know, when you, when you know some player is facing consequences, if they're either suspended for a game or two games or whatnot, we're obviously kicked off the team. I'm not here to judge what the punishment should be. I just know that I feel like the public does because, because what they're doing is a danger, you know, in some of these cases is dangerous to the community. Um, uh, Kenny McIntosh's uh, crash that's, that's described in here where his, he crashed into an Uber driver's SUV, so such force that it ripped wheels off both vehicles. Um, these are these are not things that are happening in a dorm room. They're happening in the city, in the community. They're dangerous. They're affecting other people. So, um, but that's all he has to say for it. The president of the school just basically says, like, ah, we're good with how he's handling it. Um, Georgia is now such a major program, national program, and a dynasty that this is really the first. Uh, big investigation I've seen with any scrutiny toward Kirby Smart, whereas I feel like once Nick Saban got going there, you know, there have been a lot of stories over the years where people question the way he handled something. So we'll see if anything comes out of this. Um, I also just put from a journalism standpoint, I feel like 15, 20 years ago, it would not be unusual to see the local newspaper investigate the powerhouse football program. But as those papers have scaled back, um, as in some cases, the relationship between the program and the media is more friendly. I mean, when I saw this, I was like, wow, you just really don't see something like this, you know, on the scale that the AJC took on. Because, uh, you know, they're going to get canceled subscriptions and nasty letters to the editor. How dare you criticize Kirby? But they thought it was an important story to tell. Yeah. Um, well, we'll see. We'll continue to follow this story. Obviously, by and large, things have been really glowing about Georgia football coming off back-to-back -back national titles. Hopefully, there are, you know, it's, my hunch is maybe there'll be some some something announced at some point, maybe on disciplining going forward, but who knows at this point. Um, Unless somebody in power there is going to tell Kirby he has to do something. I don't expect him to do anything. I think we'll next hear from him at SEC Media Days, but we shall see. Um, okay, again, emails. Send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And if, hey, if while you're at it, why don't you, you know, if you haven't done so anytime recently, go on Spotify, Apple, rate the podcast. Give us a five-star rating. Say nice things. It helps get the word out. We'll see you next time.